0: Russia's prison service says imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. It's Friday, February 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, a vigil last night in Kansas City honored a 43-year-old mother, community leader, and DJ who was fatally shot at a Super Bowl celebration. Also this hour, a Justice Department watchdog finds federal prisons failed to prevent nearly 350 inmate suicides over an eight-year period. Plus, Denver's mayor talks about the city's budget cuts to help cover the cost of providing services for newly-arrived migrants.
1: We started the first set of actions this week, which includes reducing the hours in our rec centers, closing rec centers for some days, closing some of our DMV sites on certain days and weeks.
0: Mostly sunny and 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korova Coleman. There are reports from Russia that say Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in prison. And Bears Charles Maines has more from Moscow.
3: Well, we heard of these reports from the uh, prison authorities in the Yellowman's Autonomous Republic. This is in the far north of Russia where Navalny is current, currently serving out a lengthy sentence. Uh, apparently, they say that Navalny felt bad after a walk in the prison yard, uh, immediately lost consciousness. Uh, medical staff tried to resuscitate him and failed to. Now, we haven't heard confirmation of Navalny's death from Navalny's family or his associates. They say they're looking into these reports and they won't know until his lawyer visits the prison colony in the coming hours.
2: NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis returns to Georgia State Court today. A Georgia judge is weighing whether she should be disqualified from prosecuting Georgia's election interference case against former President Donald Trump and others. Several defendants accuse Willis of having a financial stake in the case because of her romantic relationship with the special prosecutor. From Member Station WABE, Sam
4: Greenglass reports on her testimony yesterday. District Attorney Fonny Willis sparred with defense lawyers as they told conflicting narratives about when the relationship began and if Willis reimbursed prosecutor Nathan Wade for their personal travel.
2: You're confused. You think I'm on
5: trial these people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial.
4: After a former friend of the DA testified the prosecutors began dating before Willis hired Wade for the Trump probe, Willis and Wade disputed that timeline and said they're no longer romantically involved. And defense counsel pressed the two on their assertion that Willis reimbursed Wade for travel in cash. Testimony continues before the judge rules whether the case can stay with the Folden DA's office. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta.
2: A new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds there are regional differences in who's getting long COVID. As NPR's Ping Huang reports, some states have much higher rates.
6: West Virginia, Alabama, and Montana have some of the highest rates of long COVID. Around one out of 10 residents in these states reports having symptoms like fatigue, lingering coughs, and brain fog for at least three months after getting COVID, according to a national telephone survey. The states with the lowest rates of long COVID included Hawaii, Maryland, and Vermont, where the residents were about half as likely to report having those symptoms. Nationally, around 7% of U.S. adults say they've ever had long COVID. Prevalence tends to be higher in the South, Midwest, and West, and lower in New England and the Pacific region. The report says that understanding geographic differences could help guide resources towards the people and places that need them most. Ping Huang, NPR News. Mourners in Kansas City held a
2: vigil last night for the victims of this week's mass shooting. One woman was killed and more than 20 others were shot. This is NPR.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts officials are weighing their options after Milton voters rejected a state-mandated plan to allow more multifamily housing. Milton's no vote brings the town out of compliance with a law that requires more housing in communities served by the MBTA. WBOR Simon Rios reports.
7: Ed Augustus heads the newly created State Office of Housing and Livable Communities. He says the no vote highlights a lack of fairness between cities with dense multifamily housing and towns that have historically rejected housing for less affluent people.
1: It could be DPW employees, it could be preschool teachers. It could be folks who work in coffee shops or supermarkets. But when you have a community that's completely unaffordable and we put the burden on another community to provide the housing options, that just isn't fair. Augustus points to more than a dozen grant
7: programs that Milton could lose out on as a result of the no vote. That's unless officials in Milton are able to come up with a new housing plan that's acceptable to more of the community. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Simon Rios.
0: Harvard University faces a subpoena for documents in the ongoing congressional inquiry into allegations of anti-Semitism on campus. The House Education Committee announced today it would serve subpoenas to Harvard for documents related to the investigation. Committee Chairwoman Republican Virginia Fox of North Carolina previously criticized the school's response to a request for information. Congressman Jake Auchincloss says leaders in Washington should move forward with immigration reform for reasons beyond just securing the southern border. WBUR's Rob Lane has more.
4: Auchincloss says the American immigration system isn't working for Massachusetts, in part because the state is losing foreign students who can't legally work in the U.S. after they complete their degrees. Auchincloss tells WBUR's Radio Boston that's creating shortages in fields like medicine.
3: We're educating people, PhDs and postdocs, who then can't get the visas they need to stay here. We can fix that.
4: Auchincloss says executive action could help address the problem, but more thorough reform would need approval from Congress. Last week, Senate Republicans blocked a measure that would have coupled certain immigration rule changes with foreign aid to Ukraine and other countries. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob
0: Lane. Worcester Mayor Joseph Petty says he's considering new rules for people who take part in city meetings virtually. As of now, he says, virtual attendees will have to turn their cameras on and provide their full phone numbers if they're joining by telephone. The move comes after the city council meeting this week when two participants online used anti-Semitic and racist language. Several Worcester counselors have received anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQ mailers. Mayor Petty says he won't stand for such, quote, atrocities. Jennifer Lopez is coming back to Boston. She'll bring her concert tour to t d Garden on August 7th. J Lo has announced a new tour that'll kick off in Orlando on June 26th and wrap up in Houston August 31st. Later this half hour on morning edition, an interview with Jennifer Lopez. It's seven o seven.
8: WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com.
0: The Bruins lost their third straight, this time at home to the Seattle Kraken, 4-1. The bees are in the middle of a seven-game homestand. They skate against the Los Angeles Kings tomorrow. The Celtics are off for the All-Star break. Mostly sunny and windy today with highs in the upper 30s. Clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of snow around mid-morning. Sunday, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs will be in the mid-30s and it'll be windy. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
9: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, Working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Amy e. Martinez.
11: And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We are following a report this morning that Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, is dead. A statement came from the Russian prison service in the region where Navalny has been imprisoned. The authorities say he fell ill after a walk and lost consciousness. His family says they have not been able to confirm Navalny's death. This is one of several news items relating to Russia we will discuss with Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor. Yesterday, he met with several congressional leaders to discuss news of a new Russian anti-satellite capability, as the administration called it. And the administration is also urging the House to approve funding for Ukraine. Mr. Sullivan, good morning, sir. Good morning. What are your thoughts on Navalny's reported death?
3: Well, Steve, if it's confirmed, it is a terrible tragedy. And given the Russian government's long and sordid history of doing harm to its opponents, it raises real and obvious questions about what happened here. But I'll withhold further comments on it until we learn more, and we are actively seeking confirmation, as I know. Mr. Navalny's family is as well, and uh, we'll determine from there what what comes next.
11: Okay, and of course, we are working to get further confirmation as well here at NPR, and we'll keep people up to date on that. I I, want to remind people that you met several House leaders yesterday, including Mike Turner, the committee chairman of intelligence, who first called public attention this week to some kind of threat. Uh, You had said you were a bit surprised by Turner's public warning about this. So I could imagine this meeting being awkward to discuss this satellite capability. Was it awkward? It was
3: deeply substantive. I mean, we dove right in uh, to what is a serious matter of national security concern. We went into the intelligence. And even more importantly, we talked about the steps the administration is taking to deal with this and to ensure the security of the American people. Uh, It was a bipartisan meeting people focused, both Democrats and Republicans, on the substance, uh, not on the politics or, or the public sturm and drang. And I think we emerged with a good understanding of the way forward. Uh, but as I said publicly, I was surprised about uh, the public statements relating to this threat because I had put on the books days ago a meeting uh, with House leadership on this to be able to talk to them privately. And And when we deal with serious threats like this that uh, that involve highly sensitive intelligence, we like to do so behind closed doors.
11: Um, The White House called this an anti-satellite capability, not an anti-satellite weapon. What's the difference?
3: Well, it's, we've been placed in a somewhat awkward position because of the public disclosures. We're trying to protect sources and methods, meaning that we don't want our intelligence sources to be burned by saying too much publicly and that requires that we are very careful with our language Uh, so the language that we have used anti-satellite capability um, has been approved by the intelligence community is the way that we are characterizing the program and we have to be careful in how much we share about the specific nature of the threat but an anti-satellite capability of course means something that the Russians could use to go against satellites so if people wanted to characterize it using a different word, of course, they could do so.
11: Would this capability, if deployed, violate the 1967 Outer Space Treaty that bans nuclear weapons in space?
3: It would violate longstanding international obligations of Russia, but I can't go further than that today, uh, given the limitations on
11: what I can share. Okay. Critics of Chairman Turner have accused him of releasing this information because of his own motives they've said he wants to reauthorize an intelligence surveillance act that's been stuck in the house or they've said that he wants to make the case for funding uh, ukraine and its war against russia which some republicans oppose i'm just curious does this news in fact help make the case that russia is a dangerous enemy that needs to be opposed
3: well first i want to be clear that i do not question chairman turner's motives i think He believes that this is a serious matter of national security concern and he wanted to call attention to the members of Congress on it. Obviously, I would have liked to have seen it unfold in a different way, but that doesn't go to the core question of motives. I do believe that this is something that We have to and are and have from the moment that we gained this information, we have to take it seriously. We have to work with allies and partners on it. This is something that concerns not just the United States, but countries around the world. And so we are actively engaging with those countries and directly with Russia uh, to try to ensure that things do not proceed in a way that uh, end up destabilizing international peace and security.
11: You were in the room with Speaker Mike Johnson, who has voted against U.S. aid for Ukraine in Passed. Uh, some members of his conference totally oppose it. He's turned aside a Senate bill that includes aid for Ukraine, uh, and it's stuck in the House. Do you feel any assurance that Johnson is willing to allow a House vote on Ukraine aid at all?
3: Speaker Johnson told me directly yesterday that he would like to see a vote on Ukraine aid as well as the other elements of aid in the supplemental for Israel, for the Indo Pacific, and so forth. Um, How that happens, when that happens, (laughs) that is a matter of enormous interest to myself, to President Biden, and to the Ukrainian people, because every day that passes that we are not providing this aid to Ukraine, they have less ammunition to defend themselves, less capability to take Russian missiles out of the sky that are terrorizing Ukrainian cities, and less, of the kinds of tools and resources they need to defend Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. So we have got to see this happen fast. And I was uh, very much uh, emphatic and direct with the speaker and with all the members I saw yesterday uh, that we would like to see a vote on a bipartisan basis, building on a 70-vote resounding Mm -hmm. approval of this measure in the Senate.
11: Um, There are Republicans who've spoken on this program who said, hey, Europe should step up. They should be paid more i'm curious if that's possible for this reason ukraine started the war with a lot of old soviet made russian made gear they've transitioned to a lot of u.s made weapons in part is it essential is it absolutely indispensable that the u.s continue to aid them now because of the way that they are armed
3: US support is indispensable, but that's not inconsistent with asking the Europeans to step up and do more, which we've done and which they have responded to. In fact, a substantial amount of the military assistance going to Ukraine right now is coming from our European allies and partners. We've rallied a coalition of 50 nations to make major contributions in weapon systems and other capabilities. But to your question, there is no substitute for the kinds of resources and the types of capabilities that only the United States can provide. It is an obligation we have to help defend the people fighting for their freedom, to help support European security, and to help avert a situation where if Putin wins in Ukraine, all of Europe is at threat, and the likelihood that the U.S. gets dragged into a conflict
11: goes up. Jake Sullivan is President Biden's National Security Advisor, and we want you to know that we've also been talking with him about Israel, and we'll hear that elsewhere on NPR. Mr. Sullivan, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Shock gave way to grief
10: last night in Kansas City, Missouri, as the community turned out for a vigil to honor Lisa Lopez Galvan.
12: The 43 year old mother, community leader, and radio host died in Wednesday's shooting. The violence broke out at a parade held in celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win.
10: NPR's Brian Mann is in Kansas City this morning. Good morning, Brian.
13: Good morning, Michelle.
10: So you were at last night's vigil. Thank you for that. What did you hear?
13: Yeah, people in Kansas City, especially in the Hispanic community, really adored Lisa Lopez-Galvan. They described her as one of those people who just kind of connect everybody and put all the pieces together. Uh, Christina Nunez grew up with her and said Lopez-Galvan was at her wedding.
14: She was here to do good. This was senseless, senseless. And it's just so hard to understand.
13: 23 other people were victims of this violence half of them uh, michelle under the age of 16 and one thing i heard last night is that people here just don't feel safe isabella Videz was at the chief's victory celebration and then one day later she was at this vigil it
15: just sucks
5: and being so scared and i'm, I'm 23 <laughs> i grew up when sandy hook happens it feels like nothing ever changes
16: and i just I wanted to come out because it's like, it's a very lonely feeling and I didn't want to be alone.
13: (laughs) So people did gather, they wrapped arms around each other, they held candles that they had to kind of shelter with their hands against the winter wind that was blowing last night.
10: I understand that there are two people in custody, two, two juveniles in custody. Do we know any more about what led to this episode of violence?
13: Yeah, police here say this appeared to be a dispute between several people that ended in gunfire. We don't have a lot of details. They say prosecutors who specialize in working with juveniles are now part of the investigation, trying to figure out what charges might be filed. There was a third suspect, an adult detained after the shooting. That individual was released yesterday. Police now believe that person was not involved in the violence. There was one hopeful development yesterday, Michelle, of nearly 30 people admitted to area hospitals. About two-thirds have been released as of yesterday. About eight people, some of them kids, however, are still in hospital.
10: Brian, we had Kansas City's Mayor Quentin Lucas on All Things Considered last night, and he expressed, you know, sorrow and frustration at the, just the level of gun violence in his community. I just want to play a little bit of what he said.
7: When you have 850 officers and folks who will act recklessly nearby them, who can still get off enough rounds to hit almost two dozen people within just a matter of, of moments, That tells us that the guns, the types of guns that we have and their accessibility, easy availability is a problem.
10: So Brian, I was just wondering what you heard at the vigil last night. Do people there think that there
13: are answers? Yeah, a lot of people at this gathering, Michelle, were calling for tougher gun laws. Right now, there are very few restrictions on carrying firearms in this Republican controlled state, though it does remain to be seen how these underage individuals might have acquired the guns allegedly used in this shooting. One other thing people were talking about a lot at this gathering was finding ways to de-escalate conflicts and rivalries among young people here. Community leaders say these disputes are leading to a lot of shootings, a record number of murders in Kansas City last year, more than 180, many involving firearms. Again, police haven't said exactly what kind of arguments sparked this violence. We know very little about the suspects, except that they appear to be young.
10: That is NPR's Brian Mann in Kansas City, Missouri. Brian, thank you.
13: Thank you.
0: This
10: is NPR News.
0: Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's reported death. Also, a verdict is expected today in Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a new report from the Justice Department's Inspector General finds that there were nearly 350 suicides in federal prisons over an eight-year period. That comes in the wake of several high-profile deaths, including the, that of James Whitey Bulger. It's 720.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in health care built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org.
14: Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR Crossword Puzzle each day.
18: Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador.
14: Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun.
18: Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
14: Play the WBUR Crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun.
0: Mostly clear skies today. It'll be windy and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. Skies grow overcast tonight. Temperatures will dip into the 20s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly sunny and windy with highs in the
19: mid-30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Learn more at Viking.com. From the estate of Joan B. Croc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning
10: Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
12: I'm e. Martinez.
10: And I'm Leila Fadel.
20: Remember when Jennifer Lopez sang, She's still Jenny from the Block. I definitely remember the song was from her 2002 album, This Is Me Then. Today, more than two decades later, Jennifer Lopez has a new album, This Is Me Now. So what's changed? In one regard, not much. Then, she wrote songs about her new love, Ben Affleck. The couple broke up a few years later. Now, they're reunited and married. And J.Lo is singing about her old love turned new again, Ben Affleck.
5: We could be driving around. 20 miles into the desert by now Your hands on my thigh Laughing till we cry Didn't tell a soul How it's going down tonight There was an inciting incident both times And I was That I fell in, in love The first time I wrote this album Called This Is Me Then It was inspired by that time in my life And 20 years later When we reunited The kind of same thing happened to me Where I was like oh, I want to get back in the studio I want to make music again And um, I know some Artists make music when they're tortured and heartbroken, but not me. (laughs) I'm the the opposite. I love that. (laughs) And and when I was done with the album, I thought to myself, okay, this is not the whole story. The whole story could
20: only be told in a new film. That's right, she's releasing both an album and a film today. This Is Me Now, a Love Story, is sort of an extended music video in which she performs these songs with the dance moves that first made her famous. The dance sequences, the music, the dialogue tell a love story that mirrors a lot of what we know
5: about Jennifer Lopez's life. It's very meta, right? Like, it's not exactly an autobiography about my life, but it's definitely about a hopeless romantic who's on a journey to love. And I do get very vulnerable in it in that um, I do use experiences from my own life and let that inspire the story. So yeah, for sure, it's the most personal project I've ever done in a lot of ways. Is that hard to
20: do such a personal project and share, you know, the ups and downs of yeah. what it is
5: to search for love? I think there is a kind of a PTSD that I have from people, you know, beating you up and stuff in the media and things like Mm -hmm. that from before. But I think I'm at a point in my life where I'm just too grown and I have to kind of follow my own instincts and that doing anything other than that usually turns out very badly. (laughs) (laughs) And so... I felt a very strong artistic impulse to create this. And even though there were a lot of voices in my head, a lot of fears, and a lot of people thinking, oh, don't spend, you know, because I wound up kind of financing it myself. But at the end of the day, you kind of have to really follow the only voice that matters, which is your
20: own. What an incredible place to be, too, to be able to fund your own project in this way. I mean, that wasn't probably an option yeah. for you 20, <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago.
5: Nope, nope. It wasn't. And it was still a big risk for me now.
20: The title track on your album, This Is Me Now, which has that classic J-Lo sound, mm-hmm. is about who you are today. Yeah.
5: A woman in love is what I grew up wanting to be. Loves what I wanted It's my melody, the symphony. Who is Jennifer Lopez in 2024? It's funny, you know, the This Is Me Now became such a kind of statement for me Mm. that I never thought I would be making after I made This Is Me Then. And it really is about embracing who you are, your true self. Like, I have these great things about me and I have these things where I struggle and I have these scars and going, you know what, I'm okay in this moment this is me now, Mm. this is it. And that I think is such a beautiful statement of like I said, embracing and loving yourself in a way that I struggled with a lot of my life. Mm -hmm. Because I always, I think and a lot of us, like, I'm not good enough at this. I'm not good enough at that. People think I'm, you know, an imposter. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or- I know that voice. Yeah. And there's voices from outside too. Right. Who straight say it to you.
20: Well, I hope today you can be like, I'm Jennifer Lopez.
5: (laughs) That's who I am. I think it's proven now. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all I'll ever be.
20: Is that what Hearts and Flowers is about? I mean, this song that's to me is this person who's overcoming obstacles. You describe the beauty that comes from hardship if you could talk about what it's about
5: yeah hearts and flowers for me was really about the idea that people look at you and even in this day of social media look at you from the outside and everybody kind of puts this best foot forward but the truth is it's not all hearts and flowers no matter how blessed or great you think somebody's life is it's not that it's work to become a better person it's work to do all of these things and and you got to stay in touch with who you are, but at the same time, grow. And I think this whole project is about kind of thinking things are like a fairy tale and then realizing that they're not.
20: Is Hollywood where you feel you belong the most? I mean, now that you're doing music again, where do you feel the most you?
5: The most me. At home and then at home on stage. Really? Like I get to be my best self up there, you know? And I get to share something with everybody who comes into that audience. The album This Is Me Now and the
20: film This Is Me Now, The Love Story, are both out today. You can stream the film on Amazon Prime Video. Jennifer Lopez, thank you so much. Thank you, my sweet. Thank you so much.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBR's Morning Edition. The death of country star Toby Keith has put his music back in the spotlight, including a controversial hit that's a mainstay at rallies for Donald Trump. It's 7.29.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Thoughtform's custom builders committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. And Boston Ballet's Winter Experience Celebrating the Evolution of Dance with two world premieres starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
22: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Russia's Federal Prison Service says Alexei Navalny has died. The prison in the far northern part of the country says the outspoken critic of President Vladimir Putin felt bad after a walk and lost consciousness. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan.
3: If it's confirmed, it is a terrible tragedy, and given the Russian government's long and sordid history of doing harm to its opponents, it raises real and obvious questions about what happened here. But I'll withhold further comments on it until we learn more, and we are actively seeking confirmation, as I know Mr. Navalny's family is as well, and uh, we'll determine from there what, what comes next.
22: Navalny was 47 years old. Israeli forces have taken over southern Gaza's largest hospital, where they believe bodies of some Israeli hostages are being held. And Pierce Eleanor Beardsley says the situation in that hospital is dire.
6: According to Gaza's health ministry, there's no power or heating in the hospital, and fuel for generators is set to run out in the next 24 hours. And the ministry said there are patients on respirators and babies in incubators. They called it a catastrophic situation.
22: NPR's Eleanor Beardsley. And despite international pressure, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his forces will go into Rafah, where at least a million Palestinians are sheltering. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoi. The state's elementary and secondary education commissioner is stepping down next month. Jeff Riley says his decision is guided by both personal reasons and a recognition that Massachusetts needs durable leadership in the state's top education role. WBR's Carrie Young reports.
6: Multiple state education leaders praised the contributions of the top education policy official, Tom Scott, the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents, says he appreciated how the commissioner was accessible to school leaders 24-7 during the COVID-19 pandemic. He adds that Riley has always been a respectful leader.
17: It's not like we always agreed, but we were always agreed to be disagreeable about issues and understand each other's side. And for me, it was sort of a hallmark of something that was pretty special about his role as commissioner.
15: Several members of Governor
6: Healy's administration also thanked Riley for his work, saying he was dedicated to the state's students and educators. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: The state is reporting 29 COVID-related deaths over the last week. That's according to the latest data from the Massachusetts Department of Health. It's down slightly from the week prior. There were more than 2,500 confirmed cases of the illness during the same period. The state is seeing a general decline in cases since numbers peaked during the holiday season. Leaders with the METCO program want their students to be eligible for the BPS Sundays program. That's a new pilot program from the city that makes a number of Boston's big museums free for public school students and their families twice a month. More than 3,000 METCO students who attend school in suburban districts aren't eligible, even though they live in Boston. The city says the program could grow, and it's been popular so far. Philip Smith brought his two young sons to the New England Aquarium for the first time and praise the program for opening up places in a way field trips don't.
11: Usually you're going with a teacher. It feels more like a school event. It's not maybe not as relaxed as it could be, but now you're turning this into a family event and that's what is amazing about this opportunity.
0: The next BPS Sunday is March 3rd. It's seven thirty-four.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
0: The NBA All-Star Game is this weekend, so the Celtics are off. Meanwhile, the Bruins lost at home against the Seattle Kraken 4-1. to one. The Bees have lost four of their last five games. Windy with highs in the upper 30s today under mostly sunny skies. It falls to the upper 20s tonight and clouds move in. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of snow around mid-morning. Sunday, highs in the mid-30s under partly sunny skies.
19: It's 36 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez
12: in Los Angeles, California. A new report from the Justice Department's Inspector General examines the number of deaths among inmates serving time in federal prisons. There have been high-profile deaths in federal lockups. There was the murder of Boston mob leader James Whitey Bulger in 2018. And then next year, 2019, there was the suicide of Jeffrey Epstein. NPR justice correspondent Ryan Lucas joins us now with more on this new prison audit. Ryan, what does a report find? Well, the inspector general's office looked at four categories
23: of deaths in the Federal Bureau of Prisons between 2014 uh, and 2021. And that's suicide, homicide, accident, uh, which includes drug overdoses and then unknown factors. To be clear, it wasn't looking at deaths from natural causes, things like COVID, for example. Uh, But investigators found uh, 344 inmate deaths in those four categories over that time period, the majority of which 187 were suicides. Um, The report identified operational problems, managerial problems within the Bureau of Prisons that uh, it says helped create unsafe conditions, unsafe situations that factored into these deaths in custody. So those unsafe conditions, those unsafe situations, what are some examples of that? um take suicides as as one case the bureau of prisons has policies in place to try to prevent suicides that includes doing mental health assessments to identify uh, inmates who are potentially suicidal managing medications for inmates making decisions about what kinds of cells to put people in whether it be the general population versus say special housing uh, or alone in a cell now The report found that half of the inmates who died by suicide were in single cell confinement, so in a cell on their own. And that's despite the fact that the BOP recommends against putting inmates alone in cells because it increases the risk of suicide. Uh, Guards are also supposed to do regular rounds to check on inmates. Well, the report says in a third of the suicides found in this report... Those rounds weren't happening regularly. That's one of the the things actually that went wrong in in the case of Jeffrey Epstein and his suicide uh, at a federal facility in New York. So the report says there were these recurring policy violations and operational failures that contributed uh, to the inmate suicides.
12: Okay, so that's suicides. The report also looked at uh, other deaths, homicides, overdoses. What are the pattern uh, did uh, investigators find in those deaths? Well, the report documented 89 homicides and 70
23: overdoses, and there are a lot of things that factor in here. There's contraband, both weapons and drugs being smuggled into federal prisons. Uh, The watchdog also found shortcomings in how the Bureau of Prisons responded in emergencies in nearly half of the inmate deaths in this report. That includes things like um, a lack of urgency in emergency situations, failing to use or even bring the proper emergency equipment. Uh, and it also includes problems with administering
12: medication that's used to reverse opioid overdoses. So, OK, the problems that we've all talked about just now, um, is that something that can be fixed?
23: Well, the inspector general makes recommendations, 12 of them, in this report. And the Bureau of Prisons says that it's taken steps to mitigate these sorts of deaths. but. Look, the the Federal Bureau of Prisons has had major problems for many years now. Uh, The Inspector General previously has pointed to two major issues hanging over everything. That would be crumbling infrastructure, meaning the prisons themselves, uh, as well as chronic staffing shortages. And on the staffing issue, guards routinely have to work overtime. Nurses and mental health workers frequently are getting pulled into guard duty. That means that health care, including mental health care for inmates, are getting short shrift. And those sorts of things contribute to the problems uh, that we see in these inmate deaths in this report
12: here. All right. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thanks for bringing this information. Thank you.
10: Iowa senior Caitlin Clark set the NCAA's all-time scoring record in women's basketball last night in a home game against Michigan. Greg Eklund recaps the historic moment from Iowa City.
24: All of the Iowa Hawkeyes women's basketball games are sold out this season, but the school band's percussion section had never played outside the arena before tip-off until this night. The crowd filing inside was already pumped up. It was inevitable the all-time scoring mark would fall on this night. After all, Caitlin Clark had scored at least 26 points in every previous Big Ten conference game this season. It brought out fans like Abby Voles, who had never been to a Hawkeye home game before. While standing in line for Ice Cream Cones, well known around here as the Carver Cones in Carver-Hawkeye Arena, Voles says she paid $250 per ticket for her family of four.
15: I compared it to, at least in Iowa, it's equivalent to watching Michael Jordan in the 80s. You know what I mean? It's something I thought would be fun for our family to experience.
24: Clark needed only eight points to break the record and wasted no time. She scored Iowa's first eight points just two minutes 12 seconds into the game.
25: That was never really my goal to get it done really fast, but um, made my first couple shots, so was able to get another one up pretty fast, and um, it was nice to get it done there fairly quick.
24: Caitlin Clark scored a career-high 49 points in the Hawkeyes' 106-89 win against the Michigan Wolverines. Clark has scored 3,569 points in her collegiate career. The record breaker was a three-pointer that has become commonly known at Iowa as a Logo Three. It was 35 feet away from the basket. The record was previously held by Kelsey Plum, who played at the University of Washington from 2013 to 2017. Martha Kelly, a teacher and coach at Buffalo Grove High School outside Chicago, paid $700 for her ticket and toted a camera to capture the moment. She says the drive to Iowa City was worth it.
25: This is like my Disney World, you know. So it, it was well worth it. I got a good uh, good shot of it, and I got a good video, and I'll remember this forever.
24: The next scoring milestone is the women's basketball record held by Lynette Woodard, who played college ball at the University of Kansas. She scored 80 points more than Clark's current total. She played at KU before the NCAA conducted its own women's championships. The NCAA doesn't recognize Woodard's record because she played under a different governing body. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter thinks the NCAA should recognize Woodard's record and would like to see Clark also surpass that.
16: We played basketball before the NCAA, and so I don't know why we have this, you know, NCAA records,
26: but I think that makes really good sense.
24: Debbie Antonelli, a commentator for ESPN and CBS, made the trip on her own as a fan to see Clark break the record. She says Clark's generational talents will resonate for years to come.
21: Every little girl that's wearing a Caitlin Clark shirt or handling a poster or has come here with her mom and dad is probably dribbling a basketball in their driveway as well, trying to emulate Caitlin. And isn't that absolutely wonderful?
24: The all-time scoring leader for both the men and women is held by former LSU star Pete Maravich. Clark is less than 100 points from breaking that record. For NPR News, I'm Greg at Clinton, Iowa City.
10: I was a legend before I was famous. Everyone saw it back when I was nameless. Ain't even that. You could say that I'm blameless, but even so, I'm so damn sick, I'm contagious, I'm ageless. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, Atlanta District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to take the witness stand again today after a sometimes contentious testimony yesterday about whether a personal relationship with another prosecutor should disqualify her from leading a case against Donald Trump. Upper 30s and windy today. It'll be mostly sunny. Upper 20s tonight, and it'll grow cloudy. Overcast tomorrow with a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be in the upper 30s. Partly sunny and windy on Sunday in the mid-30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
8: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at VRTX.com.
0: Boston based. Toast is the latest tech company to announce layoffs. The restaurant software firm is laying off 550 people. That's about 10 percent of its workforce. Company officials say they're trying to cut expenses as profits are down. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is suing Boston-based Atlantic Properties over workplace discrimination. The agency says Atlantic Properties withdrew an employee's job offer after learning they had cancer. They say the decision violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. The EEOC is seeking back pay, damages, and a way to prevent future discrimination at the company. Canton-based Point32 Health plans to acquire a Springfield-based healthcare plan company. It's acquiring Bay State Health subsidiary Health New England. Point32 says it hopes the move will expand its healthcare network and plan offerings. It's
19: 7:45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kaufman Foundation. Providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org This is NPR.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
12: And I'm mean, Martinez. Country music star Toby Keith died earlier this month, but his memory definitely lives on at certain kinds of political rallies through one of his most popular and controversial hit songs. Here's NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben.
14: At a recent Trump rally in South Carolina, courtesy of the Red, White and Blue, played three times. The song was written in response to 9-11, but today that's not all it signifies.
16: It didn't have as much meaning to me because it was right after the Twin Towers. Now it's got more of a meaning to me because our country just sucks.
14: That's Tanya Helm, who was pumping her fist to the song.
16: Biden needs to go, and what better song to do it to than to Toby Keith's Red, White
14: and Blue. Courtesy now lives on in MAGA-adjacent politics. It's a mainstay at Trump rallies, and it's arguably a new political anthem, an in-your-face cousin to Trump's walkout music, God Bless the USA. The song is maybe best known for a lyric about where America would kick its enemies.
17: Cause we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way. Hey.
14: Courtesy was originally written for USO tours, according to Nadine Hubbs, a professor at the University of Michigan and author of Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music.
8: After 9-11, he had written and was singing it for these working-class kids overseas, many of whom were about to go into harm's way. It is a very specific song directed to a specific audience at a very specific moment. Those troops urged Keith to
14: record Courtesy, and it was immediately polarizing, becoming part of an early 2000s culture war. There have long been patriotic country songs, and Courtesy was part of a wave written post-9-11. But the song stands out, says Brian Mansfield, managing editor of trade publication Country Insider.
7: I don't know that you had many of them that aggressive, but you also didn't have attacks on American soil very often.
14: Keith's politics were complicated. He praised both Republicans and Democrats. Likewise, he both criticized Trump and played at a Trump inauguration celebration. But Keith's politics are now beside the point because courtesy has a life of its own, resonating with a crowd spoiling for an election fight. Rally attendee Cora McGrath cheered when the song played. This song applies to Trump because
24: it won't apply to Biden. He's made us weak. There's no country song came out
14: in support of this country talking about Biden. Today, courtesy fits neatly into a pissed off political moment in the view of country insiders Mansfield.
4: There are large
7: segments of the population that have gone from anger as a response to a specific event to anger as just a way of seeing the world.
14: Indeed, Courtesy's subtitle is The Angry American. And there's something distinctly Trumpian in the defiance of loving a song that originally upset so many, particularly liberals. Still, Hubs at the University of Michigan sees irony in Trump using a pro-military tune.
8: The former president who dodged the draft, who has mocked Gold Star families, who mocked Nikki Haley, asking where Major Michael Haley, her husband, was. The level of disconnect is staggering. It's not clear how Keith
14: would have aligned this election. But Trump diehards like Tanya Helm hear courtesy and see Keith as one of them.
16: We lost a legend, and I said, we lost a vote. <laughs> Like he said, he's gonna put a boot in their ass. It's American way.
14: It's a tune that will live on, especially as long as anger is central to American politics. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News.
12: This is NPR News.
0: It's finally a Friday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, we go to New York, where a nonprofit in Syracuse is helping formerly incarcerated people find jobs by training them as line cooks. It's 7.50.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, Powering Possibilities, and Habib & Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR, habibarch.com.
27: Coal jobs have been declining for generations. Now in the town of Kaiser West Virginia, there's a different energy source on the horizon. Energy is huge in this town and
24: without it, we wouldn't have very much.
27: I'm Ari Shapiro. What happens when a wind farm comes to a coal town? On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after four today on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Russia's prison agency says the imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. A former FBI informant has been charged with lying about Joe and Hunter Biden's connections with a Ukrainian energy company. And a judge is expected to deliver a verdict today in Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
17: WBUR supporters include Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com.
0: Mostly sunny and windy today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 30s. Tonight it falls to the upper 20s and grows cloudy. Skies stay mostly cloudy tomorrow and there's a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly sunny and windy in the mid-30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News,
10: I'm Amy e Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Migrants who've crossed the southern border into the U.S. are on the move, sometimes by choice, often not. Now, Denver, Colorado's mayor, Mike Johnston, says he has to cut some city services to pay for programs to help the new arrivals. Johnston, a Democrat, told us the challenge really began last year, when a type of protected
1: status for Venezuelan immigrants expired. Almost all of our migrants arriving are fleeing crisis in Venezuela and more and more of the Venezuelans who arrived came to the country in October or November, they were not eligible for work authorization. So all they could do was try to file for asylum. And as you know, the asylum courts are so backed up that folks come to the city who I talk to and their court date is for 2029. So that's when we kept telling Biden and the secretary, you know, the biggest issues for us are, can you get us a real path to expanded work authorization and can you get more federal dollars and federal support? They heard us and fought to put those things into the bipartisan Senate package that was introduced that would have really solved this problem for us and for cities around the country. And that's why it was such a heartbreak to see candidate for president and Donald Trump coming in and saying, I want this bill dead not because it won't solve the problem, but because I know it actually will solve the problem. And if it alleviates American suffering and alleviates a humanitarian crisis, it might hurt my chances at reelection. Hmm. Uh, I just never would, thought we would have seen that moment, but that's what happened.
10: What specifically are you asking agencies and citizens of Denver to do?
1: We've asked every agency in the city to take a look at what they could do to make what is about a 15% cut to their budget across the city. Those agencies are all presenting options to us this week. We started the first set of actions this week, which includes reducing the hours in our rec centers, closing rec centers for some days. and It will involve closing some of our DMV sites on certain days and weeks. And so we are having to make some of these hard decisions, and we'll also have to reduce some of the level and length of services we can provide to migrants. We've had more than 40,000 migrants arrive in our city over the last year, more than any other city in America per capita. And we have very successfully integrated them. To do that well just requires resources, and it will be impossible for us to do that at this scale going forward without any federal help.
10: Population of Denver, what, a little over 700,000, right? That's correct. So you're telling us that you've received around 40,000 migrants.
1: That's correct. So almost 5% of our entire city's population in the last year.
10: I think many people know that the Texas governor, Craig Abbott, has been bussing migrants primarily to Democratic-led cities and states to make a point. Do you have a sense of how many were bused from the border and how many got there on their own?
1: Oh, Almost all of ours are being bused from the border. Almost all the folks who receive are coming on buses sent from Governor Abbott. And that is really because we are just the cheapest bus ticket north of El Paso.
10: This bipartisan bill was negotiated, you know, over many weeks. Did it offer you some additional support so that you wouldn't have to cut your budget?
1: Yeah, it would have actually given us the federal support we needed to not cut budgets. We wouldn't be facing budget cuts if that had passed. We would have been able to provide the services that we're providing now with federal support uh, instead of us having to find city support to do it. So both would have filled our budget need and would have solved The work authorization need for folks that arrive, these are folks that have walked 3,000 miles to get here. They're police officers and engineers and teachers. All they really need is a place to rest their head and an opportunity for a job, and they are hungry to support themselves.
10: Denver's a very diverse city, and it's, you know, understood to be a progressive city. But I can imagine that there are some people who are not pleased at the idea that their services are being curtailed to take care of other people with whom they may or may not have any connection. What do you say to them?
1: The dilemma is when you have values on both sides and you have to manage those values. We have a value of being a welcoming and compassionate city and we do not wanna be a city where women and children are out on the streets and tend to be weather intense tents. We, that's not part of our value system. And we also wanna be a city that provides high quality services to all of our residents. So without federal action, we're left to just manage that on our own, but it's not as simple as either you just stop supporting them altogether or you cut all the city budgets. What we're gonna do is both.
10: Now that you've experienced this challenge, is there any part of you that feels some sympathy for the Texas governor who says that his state is overwhelmed?
1: Oh, I've, I've said that before. I understand what the Texas governor is facing. I've reached out to him in efforts to work together, but I think... I was surprised I expected to see Governor Abbott out making the case for this border bill as well because it would have provided him the resources and the support to be able to reduce the flow, manage the claims, not be overwhelmed. And so I think if we're looking for a solution, those are out there. And if the governor of Texas and others would work with us on a coordinated strategy, if we could get the Congress to pass the work authorization and federal resources we need, this is an eminently solvable problem that America can figure out. We figured it out here in Denver. We just need the partners to help get into the work with us.
10: That is the mayor of Denver, Mike Johnston. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for talking to us. I do hope we'll talk again.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Video
12: creator Jacob Beardsley had a simple goal. I don't want to be genre-phobic. That's
28: why I'm listening to every single music genre.
12: Today's genre is... That's right. Beardsley is trying to listen to every single music genre. The 25-year-old from Southern California goes by Bluster on Instagram and TikTok. And for six months, he's been listening to
10: different types of music and posting his reactions online. So far, he's listened to at least 64 different types. That's only about 1% of the more than 6,000 genres and subgenres that Spotify lists. Some of the more unusual ones Beardsley has checked out so far, Grave Wave and Break Core.
28: When it comes to music genres, there's definitely sort of unwilling to leave your musical comfort zone that a lot of people have. Want to break people out of that.
10: He says he finds music by using a website called EveryNoise.com. It randomly picks out things to listen to. And he takes fan requests. The music he's listened to so far runs the gamut from different eras to different geographical areas.
28: There's been like a couple really influential genres that I've realized I know nothing about before making a video about it. Like Motown was one where people understandably were like, how do you not know anything about Motown?
16: Oh, mercy, mercy
12: Beardsley says he's surprised by how much he likes some of the punk sub-genres like dance punk and egg punk. Other genres? uh, Well, take harsh noise wall,
28: for example. There's some genres like that where it's just walls of static that I'll be there thinking, who's listening to this? And then I post it and see the hundreds of people put, oh, I love this. I use this to meditate and stuff. And then Stuff like that's really interesting, where I never would have thought the uses some of these genres have for people.
10: Beardsley says this experience has helped him break out of his algorithm-built music bubble.
12: Here we go, Michelle. This would be my song if I were a wrestler walking out to the crowd. <laughs>
0: mm,
11: mm, mm, mm,
10: mm. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme song, which is much better than that, sorry, was inspired
12: oh. by B.J. Lederman. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm the dominator, A. Martinez.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm executive
23: producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Russian state media reports that imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. It's Friday, February 16th. This is WB Mars Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Atlanta District Attorney Fani Willis sparred yesterday with lawyers trying to remove her from the Georgia election interference case against former President Donald Trump.
2: You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in
5: 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial.
0: Also this hour, Israeli forces have taken over southern Gaza's largest hospital, where they're searching for the bodies of hostages plus how fear of Donald Trump may be influencing House Republicans who oppose
16: more funding for Ukraine. Being primaried by somebody who is supported by Donald Trump is a real danger. Mostly sunny and 30s today.
2: It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent opposition figure, has died in a remote Russian prison at the age of 47. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, Navalny had been serving a lengthy prison term, widely seen as punishment for his years of criticism of Russian President Vladimir Putin.
7: News of Navalny's death came from the Federal Penitentiary Service in Russia's Arctic, where Navalny had been serving out a 19-year sentence. In a statement, prison authorities said Navalny lost consciousness after a walk in the prison yard and that attempts by medical staff to resuscitate him, quote, failed to yield positive results. Navalny's family could not immediately confirm the news, but have repeatedly expressed concerns about his health and treatment in prison. In 2020, Navalny was the victim of a near-fatal poisoning attack he blamed on the Russian government. A Kremlin spokesman said President Vladimir Putin had been informed and that prison medics were working to identify the cause of death. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
2: National Security Adviser Jake Sullivan says Navalny's death is a tragedy. Meanwhile, Sullivan met yesterday with top congressional leaders over news of a new Russian anti-satellite capability. Earlier this week, the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee released information. He called on President Biden to declassify information about a national security threat. Sullivan says he has now briefed the committee chair and other congressional leaders about Russia's anti-satellite capability.
3: We talked about the steps the administration is taking to deal with this and to ensure the security of the American people. Uh, it was a bipartisan meeting. People focused, both Democrats and Republicans, on the substance, uh, not on the politics or, or the public sturm and throng. And I think we emerged with a good understanding of the way forward.
2: Sullivan spoke to NPR's morning edition. The Russian anti-satellite capability is not something that has yet been deployed. An FBI informant has been charged with lying to authorities for allegedly fabricating claims about a purported bribery scheme involving Joe Biden his son Hunter, and a Ukrainian energy company. The informant's claims have featured into the Republican effort to impeach President Biden. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more.
23: Alexander Smirnov is charged with making false statements and creating a false and fictitious record. The case was brought by special counsel David Weiss, who is overseeing the separate criminal prosecutions against Hunter Biden on gun and tax charges. According to the indictment, Smirnov told the FBI that the Ukrainian energy company Burisma had paid millions of dollars in bribes to then-Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter to protect the company from investigators. But prosecutors say that was a lie and that Smirnoff made the claims up. The indictment against Smirnoff deals a blow to House Republicans who have pointed to Smirnoff's allegations in their push to impeach President Biden. In the wake of the indictment, the Republican-led House Oversight Committee says it still has ample reason to continue its investigation.
2: NPR's Ryan Lucas. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chanoi. The state is out with its first strategic plan for environmental justice. It outlines specific ways environmental departments can serve all communities across the state more equitably. WBUR's Kathleen Masterson reports this comes after years of planning and listening to community feedback.
25: The state's plan contains a long list of ideas from boosting community engagement to ensuring federal grants are distributed fairly to improving access to training for clean energy jobs. Undersecretary of Environmental Justice and Equity Maria balin Power says one tangible goal will be to evaluate just how much some families are struggling with high energy costs.
6: And how low-income communities are overburdened with the cost of energy and how much they have to pay out of their own pocket and how much burden they carry.
25: Baylin Power says the plan also calls for evaluating current environmental justice conditions across the state in order to measure progress going forward. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kathleen Masterson.
0: Massachusetts officials are trying to decide what to do after Milton voters rejected a state-mandated plan to allow more multifamily housing in the community. The town's no vote brings it out of compliance with a law that requires communities served by the MBTA to have more housing. State officials say the move puts a burden on other cities and towns to provide affordable housing. Milton could lose funding for more than a dozen grant programs because of the decision. There are 75 new Massachusetts state troopers. The latest class was sworn in yesterday during a ceremony in Springfield. The event took place two weeks after a half-dozen current and former state troopers were charged in an alleged bribery conspiracy. Jill Kaufman reports. Modern-day policing comes out of compassion, state police colonel John Mon told the new troopers.
21: Then Mon spoke about mistakes they will all make. Without being specific, he clarified that irresponsible, negligent behavior is not the same.
9: When police officers participate in this type of activity, society will paint with a very broad brush. And as a result, the actions of a few will bring discredit and disgrace upon all law enforcement professionals. Never. Ever. Forget that.
21: They are Massachusetts state troopers, mon told them, and society
0: holds them to a higher standard, as it should. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. February vacation begins after school ends today for thousands of students and their families, and it appears people are still looking to head to someplace warm. Chuck Nardoza is the managing director of travel for AAA Northeast. He says they started getting phone calls when snow was predicted earlier this week.
27: For our members here in the northeast, Aruba um, is one of the top destinations this time of year. Um, And then for, you know, the families looking for the all-inclusive type getaway, um, Punta Cana and then um, Mexico.
0: Nardoza says Florida is also a big destination. He says the number of people looking to travel is similar to last year. It's 8.07.
9: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: It's a good weekend for Boston Pro Hockey. The Bruins play at home tomorrow against the Los Angeles Kings, hoping to stop a three-game losing streak. Meanwhile, the Boston women's professional team takes to the ice at home against New York tomorrow night. And the Celtics are off. Mostly sunny and windy today with highs in the upper 30s. Clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of snow around mid-morning. Sunday, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs will be in the mid-30s and it'll be windy. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
12: It's morning edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles,
10: California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, has died in prison. He was 47. The news came first in a statement from a regional office of the Russian Federal Penitentiary Service. Later, the Kremlin spokesperson told reporters that Russian President Vladimir Putin had been informed of Navalny's death. Navalny's supporters say they have not yet confirmed his death independently. We're joined now for more on this from Moscow by NPR's Charles Smains. Charles, good morning here. Good afternoon there. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you. So, what do we know at this moment?
7: Well, we know Navalny was in a penal colony in Russia's far northwest. This is above the Arctic Circle, where he'd been transferred late last year. Uh, there were some concerns about his health at the time. Uh, he was serving out a 19-year sentence for a slew of charges, all widely seen as politically motivated. Uh, but the regional prison authorities, as you note, said Navalny collapsed while after excuse me after a walk in a prison yard. Uh, doctors were unable to revive him. Uh, He'd been in declining health for years after his imprisonment due to a a past poisoning attack. So there always were these questions about Navalny surviving in these harsh circumstances. Um, And and essentially, he was in a very isolated and very lonely place uh, at the end of his life.
10: Would you just remind us of who Alexei Navalny was and why he was such an important figure? I'm thinking he might be the only opposition leader a lot of Americans know. So just tell us about his significance, and especially in Russia.
7: Yeah, you know, he was a longtime critic of President Vladimir Putin and Russia's authoritarian government. And, of course, his imprisonment, as I noted, was widely seen as payback for his political ambitions. You know, he wanted to be uh, the next president of Russia, and he didn't hide it. Now, he emerged as a a breakout political star during anti-government protests over a decade ago and really made enemies in the Kremlin with anti-corruption campaigns that exposed graft in the government's inner circles, including uh, with President Vladimir Putin. And this had consequences for Navalny's safety he barely survived a poisoning attack in 2020. He, he blamed it on the Kremlin. Uh, but I think what, what Navalny did was really cleave sort of generational differences in Russia. You know, Putin has always tapped into older Russians, or if you like, the Soviet generations, you know, grievances over the end of the Soviet Union, over the end of the USSR. In, in turn, Navalny, he channeled this younger generation's hope that you know, Russia could break free from this uh, sort of repressive past and become more of what he called a normal country, a European country.
10: Where does this leave the opposition in Russia?
7: Well, in, in tatters. Uh, you know, most are either in prison or exile. And Navalny was the leader, and he's now dead. You know, he'd been urging supporters to campaign against uh, the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, even as he was behind bars, he remained like, you know, an active participant in Russian politics, and he had the moral weight from it because he stayed in Russia. You know, many who are abroad really can't sort of claim to tell Russians to risk their own safety as they protest the war or or, or protest against Vladimir continu- Putin's continued rule. So, for example, Navalny had been urging Russians to vote against for any other candidate other than President Putin in the upcoming March elections. Um, and it's why, for one reason, why he was in the Arctic Circle, to try and silence
10: him. That is NPR's Charles Mainz in Moscow. Charles, thank you. Thank you. I want to mention that our colleague Steve Inskeep spoke to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan this morning.
3: Given the Russian government's uh, long and sordid history of doing harm to its opponents, it raises real and obvious questions about what happened here.
10: We will have more of that conversation in the next hour.
12: The war in Gaza has made it difficult, if not impossible at times, for people there to connect with the outside world. NPR's Hadil Al Shalchi went to Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, where one of the main Palestinian cell networks is based.
29: Mm -hmm.
30: From their home in Ramallah, Rana Youssef and her husband, Ala Ibrahim, try to call family members in different parts of Gaza.
3: Now when I want to call, I dial
30: each family member one by one, calling them four or five times to see who connects, she says. But usually, it's a futile exercise. She says it may take her days to even get a text message from someone. According to Netblocks, a service that tracks Internet connectivity around the world, there have been 10 major blackouts in Gaza since the beginning of the war. Hamza Nasif is with the Palestinian Telecommunications Company, or Paltel, in Ramallah. In a room with a dozen monitors on the wall, he points to one showing little red flags up and down a map of Gaza.
29: These are uh, downsides, are out of service, and the green one is uh, the working one.
30: That's a lot of red. Yeah. When there's a blackout, Paltel has to send someone to fix cables or drive in more fuel. The cell phone provider is now giving free minutes to Gaza clients and their customer service members act as an emergency call center, trying to connect missing family members to each other or calling ambulances.
29: Working in uh, this part of the world is quite difficult.
30: Mahmoud Faris has been in charge of Paltel's emergency operations since the beginning of the war. He says no matter what, Paltel's work can be complicated. There's Israel's set of rules, but also answering to Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank.
29: So probably we are the only operator in the world that deals with three regulators.
30: Israel controls borders, imports and exports, making it difficult to bring in supplies. As part of the Oslo Accords, a landmark set of agreements from the mid-90s, Israel was also given control over all Palestinian cellular comms and technology. Even before the war, cell phone reception was spotty in Gaza. It still operates on a 2G network, while Israel, like other parts of the world, has moved on to 5G. Fadis says Paltel is used to working in difficult conditions, including war. But this time, he says it's different.
29: The scale of destruction got worse and worse. Uh, In the first two weeks of the war, uh, one of our main office buildings was bombed. That was a first for us. And later on, our uh, exchange offices and data centers got bombed one by one.
30: In Gaza, Faris says that Israel has sabotaged the comms lines twice, a claim Israel's military denies. The rest of the blackouts, he says, are due to the Israeli army's destruction of Gaza's wider infrastructure. Fiber network cables have been ripped up on the streets from bulldozing. Paltel had over 500 towers in Gaza. It says 80 percent of them are now gone. The Israeli military refused to confirm that for this story. The war has also affected the ability of aid organizations to communicate to provide life-saving services. Faris says it's hard to get in touch with his own workers on the ground.
29: We have maybe 900 employees in Gaza, maybe 1,000. Maybe we don't know the whereabouts of maybe 20% of them. We don't know. Are they alive, arrested, are they killed? We don't know.
30: And the dangers of working in a war zone affects Paltel every day.
29: We lost two of our people while doing a maintenance. They were hit. And there were maybe five or six incidents uh, where our teams were attacked by the Israeli army. Sometimes they say by mistake.
30: The Israeli military declined to comment on Faris's claim. And yet, Paltel employees, he says, keep going out to work in Gaza.
29: Some of them can simply choose to leave. But they don't, and they can. But they tell me, if we are destined to die, We prefer to die doing something useful.
30: Back in their house in Ramallah, Rana Youssef and her husband are drinking tea. Suddenly, the phone rings. It's her brother-in-law calling from Gaza, from the Red Crescent Hospital in Khan Yunus, where he's sheltering. Her husband picks up. It's a rare moment when they get an update. The hospital is besieged, her brother in law says. He can't get out, but they're fine. Yeah. And then the call drops. Hadil Al Shalchi, NPR News, Ramallah.
10: One of Charlie Brown's friends is getting his own special show.
14: Charlie Brown? Hello again. Remember me from the beach? Of course I do, Franklin.
10: Franklin was the first African-American character in the Peanuts comic strip. He debuted in print in 1969. Today,
12: Apple TV begins streaming Franklin's origin story. It's called Snoopy Presents Welcome Home, Franklin. It's all about how he met Charlie Brown, Linus, Snoopy, and the rest of the Peanuts gang.
5: A delusional pseudo-doctor? A devotee of someone
14: called the Great Pumpkin? And a kid whose parents named them Pigpen?
10: The Franklin special is really overdue. That's Craig Schultz. He co-wrote the new show. He is also the son of Peanuts creator Charles Schultz. We get to uh, go back and really find out where Franklin came from, try to tell the whole story of this kid.
12: The new special also gives Schultz a chance to redo a scene from Franklin's past that doesn't sit well with audiences today. It happened 50 years ago when Franklin came to dinner in a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving.
18: Hi, Franklin. Hi, Marcy.
10: Hi, Chuck.
4: So in the Thanksgiving episode, there's a scene where Franklin is sitting separate from the other kids.
10: That's Raymond Percy, the director of Welcome Home, Franklin.
4: A lot of people saw it, and in recent years didn't like the only black
10: character separate from all the white characters. In the new show, the dinner scene takes place in a pizza restaurant. Franklin again sits by himself, and then...
14: Hey, Franklin! We see if you a seat over here. Come join us.
6: Ain't that what friendship's really all about?
4: We were able to kind of recreate that scene and turn something that was this unfortunate controversy into a moment for people to talk about.
12: There's another nod to Franklin's past in the Apple TV special. In that first 1968 appearance, Franklin rescues Charlie Brown's runaway beach ball.
10: It was a powerful image, and at the time, a rare one. A black child and a white child together on a beach when many public beaches were still segregated. Welcome Home Franklin recreates that scene.
18: Is is this your beach ball? That thing sure has a mind of its own. Thank you for catching it. I'm Franklin. My name is Charlie Brown.
4: You know, Franklin's been around for 50 years and what's cool is we get a chance to know him a little better and we get a chance to see the other characters kind of in a new light again because we're getting
12: to see them through his eyes. Snoopy Presents Welcome Home Franklin is out today on Apple TV. This is NPR News.
0: You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. We're following news this morning of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's reported death. Also, a verdict is expected today in Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get the latest from southern Gaza. Israeli forces are occupying the largest hospital there, where they believe the bodies of Israeli hostages are being held. It's 820.
17: WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com.
18: You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle.
14: One across digital trash, five letters south of Ecuador.
18: Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun.
14: Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
18: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun.
0: Mostly clear skies today. It'll be windy and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. Skies grow overcast tonight. Temperatures will dip into the 20s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly sunny and windy with highs in the mid-30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. QNAR.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
10: It's Morning Edition from
12: NPR News. I'm Amy
10: Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. People released from prison often struggle to find jobs. A nonprofit in Syracuse, New York, is looking to change that by training formerly incarcerated people to become line cooks. Here's Eva Pukach of Member Station WRVO.
25: Yeah, coming down, hot. A Syracuse test kitchen is bustling as Chef Joseph Bilecki is teaching the kitchen brigade the essentials of grilling. Today's lesson, pork chops. A message on the whiteboard of the kitchen reads, I am not now that I once was. Bilecki says it's kind of like the mission statement of the Center for Community Alternatives program.
17: The food service industry doesn't really care what you did.
18: They care that you show up, you show up on time, and you do your job. That's what matters.
25: And Bilecki says a lot of people don't realize how easy cooking can be. Once they learn some of the basic techniques, things start to come together. The food tastes good, and he watches the formerly incarcerated people stand a little taller in his kitchen. Now he has them hooked.
18: I'm just going to get that so it's
25: straight across there. In the very first lesson, they made chicken alfredo. Lorenz Coker-Hawkins was amazed at how much flavor they got from just a few ingredients.
7: All we used was pepper. That's it, a pinch of pepper. (laughs) No other seasonings, And it tasted amazing. And it just like kind of blew my mind. I'm like, if I could do that with just that, I could do a whole lot.
25: As Regina Brunelli roasts carrot strips in the oven, she dreams of going to culinary school and eventually opening her own diner. It's Margie's cup. It's after my grandmother. She says the kitchen has an understanding. These are people that already have a past, so not judgy people kind of been through some of the similar same things, you know what I mean, and we understand each other, and we know we're not here to judge each other on our past, but help each other build the future. Coker-Hawkins is grilling his pork chop, getting it to the optimal 145 degree internal temperature. After the program, he's hoping to get a job at a popular barbecue restaurant.
7: When you're a felon you don't, know, you don't really know your opportunities or what's out there. I want to get myself in a better position, so better positions, better money. Let me just try to cook thing out. And plus, you learn how to cook while you're here, too, so
10: I'm doing stuff at home now, too, man. Eh?
25: There's a smile across Coker Hawkins' face as he plates the food, standing the roasted carrots up against the mashed potatoes and pouring an apple chutney over his pork chop. Blackie like he knows, more than half of formerly incarcerated people are unable to find stable employment in their first year after release. He says watching folks gain that new level of confidence and the ability to carry themselves as professionals is a win for him. And he ultimately hopes to get all participants full-time positions.
18: Recidivism, 50% of people are likely to go back within five years. You can cut that in half with a full-time job. If we can have people get jobs out of here,
4: it's a lot less people going back to prison.
25: Even equipped with skills, there are other barriers to entering the workforce like transportation. Here in Syracuse, some city buses stop running before the kitchen staff can head home for the night. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse, New York.
12: Time now for StoryCorps. So Haib Sultan was a Muslim chaplain at Princeton University. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer four years ago. Sultan wanted to leave something for his three-year-old daughter, Radia, who was adopted from Pakistan. So he recorded this conversation with his wife, Arshi Ahmed.
31: You and I would stay up till 12 o'clock at night, waiting to make that phone call to Pakistan, reminding them that we were inquiring about a child and they would always say, there's no child for you. You know, I've wanted to be a father since I was a little kid. And I think hearing those words night after night, it was sad. But the moment they said, we have a baby for you, I just remember this feeling of joy.
6: Yeah, seeing her for the first time and holding her was just the most gorgeous moment of my life. So do you remember the day when you got your full diagnosis?
31: They called and they said, you probably have a year to live. But it didn't feel like all bad news. Mm. Like think about the 40 years that God has given me. What a beautiful life. What a purposeful life. What a blessed life. But Radia is always asking, are you better now? You know, I say, like Abba is not going to get better. And when she says, but then I'll cry and I'll cry. I remember saying to her, you're a human being, so it's okay to cry, to be sad. And you've told me that one of the hardest things you imagine is explaining to her where I am.
6: Yeah. When she wakes up in the morning and she looks over to our bed and says, where's Abba? And you're in the bathroom. I can't but think about that moment when I'm going to have to answer that differently. That's going to be a hard one for me.
31: You know, I feel a lot of sorrow in my heart thinking about that moment. But even though I won't be there physically, just know that I'll be there spiritually. You won't be alone. So many people have said we're praying for a miracle, but I always chuckle at that because I feel like my entire life has been a miracle. And one of them is finding you What you've done, for me, waking up in the middle of the night almost every night for the past three months because I'm in pain, those are the things that I hope Radia really knows, that that's how you took care of me. Yeah.
6: You know, I'm just grateful for each moment that we get.
31: My hope is that Radia will live life beautifully no matter how long God gives her and you are especially going to teach her what it means to take life as a gift and to live it out every day.
12: That was Sohaib Sultan and Arshi Ahmed at StoryCorps in 2021. Sultan died shortly after this recording. Their interview is archived at the Library of Congress.
19: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance. Dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com.
12: This is NPR News.
19: Today's top stories
0: are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. Tens of thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where a rebel group believed to be backed by neighboring Rwanda has a major city under siege. It's 8.29.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.
22: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Hurst. Russia's Federal Prison Service says opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow.
3: What we heard was a statement that was issued from the prison authorities in the far north of Russia, the Yamal-Nenets Autonomous Republic. Uh, they said that Navalny felt bad after a walk and we lost consciousness at the correctional facility where he's currently serving out a term, his prison term. Uh, medical staff arrived immediately and ambulance was called and they were an unable to resuscitate him.
22: NPR's Charles Main's reporting. A family spokesperson says his lawyer is heading to the prison for more information. Navalny made international headlines in 2020 when he was poisoned with an alleged nerve agent outside Russia. He returned home and was sentenced to lengthy prison stays on multiple charges. A verdict is expected today in former President Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial. He could be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and other sanctions for allegedly inflating his wealth on financial statements to make deals and secure loans. The case shines a light on Trump's image as a billionaire businessman and threatens to upend the real estate empire that vaulted him to fame and to the White House. Trump has denied any wrongdoing. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. Dow futures are down a fraction. NASDAQ futures are up by about a half percent. You're listening to NPR News from
0: Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Another young, critically endangered right whale has been found dead along the eastern seaboard. That comes three weeks after one washed up on a Martha's Vineyard beach entangled in fishing gear. Eve Zukoff reports.
14: The dead calf was born earlier this year to a mother researchers call Pilgrim. Her carcass was found off the coast of Georgia, and it's been heavily scavenged by sharks. It's the fifth critically endangered right whale to be found dead, seriously injured, or missing since mid-December, a bad year for a population of just about 350. Right whale advocates say federal regulators must do better to regulate boat speeds and fishing practices. For their part, regulators say they're now working with biologists and considering the condition of the whale and the weather to determine whether towing the calf to shore for a post-mortem exam is possible. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. The
0: Boston branch of the FBI played a key role last month in blocking a Russian cyberhacking effort. The work involved disrupting Russian bots that infiltrated thousands of computer systems across the U.S. and the world. The Russian malware targeted private homes and businesses, as well as government and military organizations. A Boston City Councilor has a novel idea for people to show their civic pride. Councilor Sharon Durkin filed an order this week to explore the idea of allowing the city to sell officially licensed Boston merchandise. WBUR's Fausta Menard has more.
12: Imagine rocking a Boston Parks and Recreation hoodie or sipping from a Department of Public Works coffee mug. Durkin says selling merch with a Boston landmark or the name of a particular municipal agency on it could generate some revenue for the city. She also says it would allow people to show off their love for Boston.
14: We're trying to create an opportunity for our city departments to be the star of the show and also for our neighborhoods and logos and iconic symbols from the city to be something that's at the forefront.
12: Durkin says there's already a lot of enthusiasm for her idea at City Hall. She hopes to schedule a hearing on the matter soon and ultimately solicit proposals from local artists and businesses who want to create and sell the merchandise. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard.
0: It's 8.33.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd.
0: Tickets at BostonBallet.org. The Celtics head into the All-Star break this weekend with the NBA's best record. The team is off until late next weekend. And the Bruins are skating through a slump. They lost last night to the Seattle Kraken 4-1. to It's the Bee's third loss in a row at home. Windy with highs in the upper 30s today under mostly sunny skies. It falls to the upper 20s tonight and clouds move in. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and we'll have highs in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of snow around mid-morning. Sunday, highs in the mid-30s under partly sunny skies. It's 35 degrees in Boston.
19: You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station,
12: it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California.
10: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A court hearing in one of former President Donald Trump's legal cases featured a different main character. Yeah, that's right. Yesterday's main protagonist was
12: Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis. She's fighting off an attempt to remove her from the Georgia election interference case involving the former president. Trump and other defendants accuse her of a conflict of interest stemming from a romantic relationship with a prosecutor that
10: she hired for the probe. WABE's Sam Greenglass has been in the courtroom, and he is with us now from Atlanta. Good morning, Sam. Hey, Michelle. OK, so awkward, embarrassing, all of the above. But what exactly does this personal relationship, which the two have now acknowledged, have to do with the Trump case? I guess I'm asking, how did we get to this hearing? Well, Michelle, this began when one of the defendants lobbed an accusation of his own.
4: He said DA Fawny Willis had been in an improper relationship with special prosecutor Nathan Wade and that she stood to financially benefit from this prosecution, with the money Wade earned from the case funding fancy trips with Willis. Essentially, the defendants argue Willis has a disqualifying conflict. To be clear, though, these claims have nothing to do with actions by Trump and others to undermine Georgia's 2020 election result.
10: So now a judge is trying to decide whether to disqualify the DA. What's the testimony been like so far?
4: Well, the two prosecutors already acknowledged that they had been more than colleagues, but there were still many unable answered questions. Some very personal, like what exactly did the relationship entail? Who paid for what? Michelle, there were gasps in the room when Willis suddenly appeared saying she wanted to testify.
5: You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an
10: election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. Well, I mean, it sounds kind of intense. What 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 exactly was so contentious? Prosecutors insist
4: the relationship did not begin before Willis hired Wade for the election probe, but an ex-friend of Willis disputed that another disagreement, whether Willis paid Wade back for her share of vacation expenses, that matters because it gets to whether Willis has a financial stake in this prosecution. Willis and Wade say she reimbursed him in cash. Defense attorneys like Craig Gillen were skeptical, as you can hear in this exchange with Wade.
17: You don't have a single solitary deposit slip to corroborate or support any of your allegations that you were paid by Mrs. Willis in cash, do you? No, sir. Not
4: a single solitary one? Not a one. Wade says he didn't have a
10: paper trail for this money because he spent it. So now you've got prosecutors with one version of events and you've got these defense lawyers with another. What does a judge do with that? Last night, I called up a
4: law professor who is actually sitting right behind me in court, Georgia State University's Anthony Michael Krace. This is his take. The evidentiary testimony that we heard today was essentially not terribly revealing. What this is essentially boiling down to is a battle of credibility. So not only will Judge Scott McAfee have to weigh what legal standard to use here, you know, an actual conflict versus an appearance of conflict, he's also got to judge the facts themselves. Look, the window is already narrow for Trump and his co-defendants to stand trial before the next election, and delays from disqualification or appeals could make that opening even smaller. And I think this underscores, despite the seemingly tabloid nature
10: of this story, the stakes are quite high. That is WABE Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Sam, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Israeli forces have entered and taken over southern Gaza's largest hospital, where they believe bodies of some Israeli hostages are being held.
12: And despite international pressure, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows Israeli forces will go into the southern town of Rafah. That's where at least a million Palestinians are sheltering. After another phone call with President Biden last night, Netanyahu, in a social media post, again rejected calls for a two-state solution.
10: We're going to go now to NPR's Eleanor Beardsley, who is following all this from Tel Aviv. Eleanor, hello. Good morning. So what are Israel and the Palestinians saying about what's happening in this hospital? Well,
6: according to Gaza's health ministry, there's no power or heating in the hospital, and fuel for generators is set to run out in the next 24 hours. And the ministry said there are patients on respirators and babies in incubators. They called it a catastrophic situation. Late last night, Israeli Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari spoke. He said Israel does not enter hospitals without good reason, and he said they have proof that Hamas has been hiding and operating inside the Nasser hospital complex. He even named ambulance drivers who he said had confessed to transporting hostages. You know, Israeli media are also reporting there may be hostages' bodies in that hospital, but we don't
10: have any proof of that yet. Meanwhile, there's been an increase in cross-border rocket fire in the country's north with the Iran-backed Hezbollah forces in Lebanon. What can you tell us about what's going on there?
6: Yeah, the two sides have traded rocket barrages that have gone deeper into each other's territory. One Israeli soldier, a young woman, was killed and several injured in an attack this week, and Israel responded with rockets into southern Lebanon, killing eight civilians there. Both sides say they are ready for war if it comes to that. But keep in mind, the rhetoric heats up and cools down regularly between Israel and Hezbollah over the border, but there's no doubt it's very high now. And this is happening as Israel remains poised to send ground troops into southern Gaza, the city of Rafah, where at least a million Palestinians are sheltering, and even Egypt is getting increasingly nervous about this and preparing for a possible influx of Palestinian refugees.
10: I understand you've also been talking to the families of Israeli hostages right now. What are they saying?
6: Yeah, you know, Michelle, they're still the main moral voice in Israeli society and they carry a lot of weight usually they meet on Saturday nights, but last night they gathered in front of Israel's Defense Department in Tel Aviv. As the war cabinet was meeting, they blocked a major four-lane road downtown. They clearly wanted to send a message, and along with huge pictures of hostages, they carried signs that said, time is running out and Biden please save us. They're furious that Israel has left ceasefire talks, and they think winning this war must begin with freeing the more than 130 hostages still being held by Hamas. I spoke with 30, 31-year-old Gil Dickman, whose cousin Carmel is in Gaza, here's what he said.
20: The most urgent thing is to bring home the hostages. That's the most urgent thing, because it's going to take time to win this war. And the hostages have no time. We have to make sure that they're home. And this is the most important thing. Then we can deal with all the other things.
10: And I understand that President Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu spoke last night. Can you tell us anything about that?
6: Well, the gap between Netanyahu and the Biden administration appears to be widening. Netanyahu called the two-state solution a reward for unprecedented terrorism, citing the October 7th Hamas massacre. And after the call, he tweeted that Israel rejects international diktats about a final status solution with the Palestinians.
10: That is NPR's Eleanor Beersley in Tel Aviv. Eleanor, thank you so much for this reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the new FCC ban on robocalls using voices generated by artificial intelligence. It comes after phone calls to New Hampshire primary voters that used AI to imitate President Joe Biden. Upper 30s and windy today. It'll be mostly sunny. Upper 20s tonight and it'll grow cloudy. Overcast tomorrow with a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be in the upper 30s. Partly sunny and windy on Sunday in the mid-30s. It's 35
8: degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's College of Communication. Presenting the acclaimed writer, David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com.
0: The Boston Planning and Development Agency is approving three new affordable housing projects around the city. The projects in Brighton, Dorchester and Fenway will bring 127 income-restricted units to the city. Officials say the developments will generate nearly 1,800 permanent jobs. The average cost of home heating oil in the state is on the rise. A State Department of Energy Resources survey shows the average price at 415 dollars a gallon. Despite the rise, prices are still not as bad as last year. Last year at this time, oil was $4.52 a gallon on average. Boston-based DraftKings is acquiring the top lottery app in the U.S. The sports betting company is buying Jackpot for $750 million. DraftKings says the acquisition will improve its marketing efficiency. It's 844.
17: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial. Committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946. And working to build community with Jazz Night presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash boston.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
10: And I'm Michelle Martin. This week, 22 Senate Republicans helped Democrats pass $60 billion in additional aid to Ukraine to help the country continue to defend itself from Russia. But a vocal group of House Republicans continues to oppose it, with a House speaker saying he has no immediate plans to bring it to a vote. So what explains the internal party divide? I've
12: called up Danielle Pletka to dig in deeper. She's an expert in U.S. foreign policy with the American Enterprise Institute. That's a conservative-leaning think tank. So, Danny, why do you think Republicans in the House seem to be willing to go to battle on this issue, even with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who
16: supports the funding. I think there are a variety of different reasons. There's a pretty large group i'd say probably 40% of the republican caucus that's all in they want to do this not only do they want to do this they have been the ones holding the biden administration's feet to the fire they've been complaining that the biden administration isn't moving weapons ammo fast enough so there's that one group you could call them traditional republicans i guess you know reagan republicans mm-hmm. There's another group that is enthusiastic, recognizes the need to support Ukraine in this fight against a shared enemy in Moscow, but they are worried. And I think part of their worry stems from the Biden administration's unwillingness to really get out front and show a lot of leadership on this. The president has made statements, but he hasn't given a big speech. He hasn't used any of the occasions that he's had to really lobby the public for this. And that kind of leadership is really necessary because the American public you know, kind of is normal and has other concerns, the border, inflation, crime, whatever it is. And so for them, this is really a difficult vote. And then there are the last guys, a very small group who simply don't believe that the United States needs to be supporting Ukraine in its battle against Russia. This is their fight, not ours. And it's not critical to American national interests. And why do it?
12: That group that you mentioned, that is all in, that wants to support Ukraine, but is worried, could some of their worry be that they might incur the wrath of Donald Trump?
16: Of course. And, you know, being primaried by somebody who is supported by Donald Trump is a real danger. You know, these are meant to be leaders, but they're also representatives, and in the House in particular— They're elected every two years. It's an endless slog for money, for votes. And Donald Trump uses the bully pulpit in ways that can be extraordinarily helpful or extraordinarily harmful.
12: How much of this is a generational divide, too? I mean, do Republicans today view Russia differently than, say, the way Soviet Union was viewed in the 20th century?
16: That's a big deal. And it's not just about the members who may be you know older or younger it's also about the voters there's a huge divide between millennials gen z and gen x and older people there's really no sense of perspective of what the environment was that the united states lived in and led prior to the 1990s and so There's not a deep understanding in certain sectors about what the costs are when we fail to lead.
12: Danny Pletka is a distinguished senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks uh, for your time.
16: It's my pleasure.
12: This is morning edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez
0: and I'm Michelle Martin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us how the United Nations Peacekeeping Agency is advocating for neighboring countries to stop interfering in the conflict in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's 8:49.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast.
27: Coal jobs have been declining for generations. Now, in the town of Kaiser, West Virginia, there's a different energy source on the horizon.
1: Energy is huge in this town, and without
24: it, we wouldn't have very much.
27: I'm Ari Shapiro. What happens when a wind farm comes to a coal town? On All Things Considered from NPR News.
24: Listen today
0: starting at four on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Russian prison officials say political activist and Putin opponent Alexei Navalny has died. President Joe Biden visits East Palestine, Ohio today, a year after a toxic chemical spill. And Harvard University faces an unprecedented congressional subpoena in an ongoing inquiry into alleged anti-Semitism on campus. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours.
0: Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Mostly sunny and windy today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 30s. Tonight it falls to the upper 20s and grows cloudy. Skies stay mostly cloudy tomorrow and there's a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly sunny and windy in the mid-30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston.
26: Manufacturing is hurting a little bit.
21: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by On Watch, a new podcast from Market Watch covering the financial news everyone is watching
26: and how it's affecting the economy and people's wallets. New episodes each Thursday. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishore, In for David Brancaccio, we got a snapshot of the manufacturing economy this week, and it was a little disappointing. Industrial production is a measure of what's being produced in manufacturing, mining, utilities. It fell in January. Economists were expecting an increase, and December's figure was revised down. So why might this be? Well, bad weather can do that, and interest rates are high, which slows a lot of things down. But there is at least one bright spot in all this, as Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman reports.
28: Manufacturing overall fell nearly 1% from January of last year, but high-tech manufacturing of semiconductors and circuit boards rose by more than 20%. No, it's not a blip. Mark Zandi at Moody's Analytics says demand for chips is booming, starting with the auto industry. Production is steadily rising globally, and of course, then there's AI. Meanwhile, the feds are spending tens of billions to build new chip factories, most of which aren't producing yet, says Ned Hill at Ohio State University's Manufacturing Institute.
9: These are very large, complicated plants to design and build. There's also a long lead time to buy the equipment, so these plants are going to roll out over a two- to five-year period.
28: Now, this alone won't jumpstart U.S. manufacturing. Semiconductors make up less than half a percent of GDP, says Paul Ashworth at Capital Economics.
16: So although it's growing at a very rapid pace, it doesn't do much even to boost manufacturing overall.
28: But that's beside the point, says Mark Zandi. This isn't about jobs. This is really about national security. We had to bring some of that chip production back home. Right now, most semiconductors are produced in Taiwan, and they're crucial for everything from defense equipment to personal computers. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace.
26: There's news just now that wholesale prices increased more than expected in January. The producer price index went up three-tenths of a percent last month. It was expected to be up just one-tenth of a percent. That would be another data point this week that the fight against inflation is not over. With that, let's do the numbers. Dow and S&P futures are down in the two to four tenths percent range, with Dow futures down 141 points. Nasdaq futures are up 12 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 4.318 percent. Jumped up on that inflation news. Nike is announcing job cuts. The sportswear giant said yesterday that it's going to lay off about 2 percent of its total workforce, which would be more than 1,600 jobs. The company is citing weaker profits as consumers pull back on discretionary spending. Marketplace Morning Report is supported
21: by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot. Learn more about Snapshot at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Snapshot not available in California or from all agents. And by the podcast Ripple, a new investigative podcast from Western
26: Sound and APM Studios. Listen now to Ripple. Late last week, the Federal Communications Commission banned robocalls that use voices generated by artificial intelligence. That came after phone calls using AI to imitate President Joe Biden were made to New Hampshire voters during that state's primary. The fake messages tried to discourage people from voting. Authorities have issued cease and desist orders against two Texas companies they say were involved with the robocalls. For more on this, we're joined by Waseem Khalid, CEO and co-founder of Blackbird AI, a firm that uses AI to spot and fight disinformation campaigns. Khalid, thanks so much for joining us.
18: Yeah, great to be here.
26: Let's go back and hear that soundbite of the fake President Biden phone call. And just to be extra clear, this is fake, 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 fake. This is not actually President Joe Biden speaking.
1: Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Your vote makes a difference
11: in November, not this Tuesday.
26: So that is not President Biden, but it is pretty convincing. This technology is, is pretty advanced and it's only getting better, right?
18: Absolutely. The, the thing about today's generative AI and, and, and technology-infused landscape is the tools that are available to do the kind of thing you just heard here have become so low cost and so easy to use by threat actors or anyone who's looking to deceive the public. It's made the ability to manipulate human perception so straightforward that it's gonna just continue to ramp up.
26: Are there less tangible or less obvious ways AI might be harnessed to manipulate people, whether that's in election years or not?
18: Well, it's the combination. People fusing all of these things together to create much more convincing realities that can deceive people much easier. So you may note that very recently there was a uh, a $25 million transaction that took place because the person who was making that wire transfer actually thought that their their CEO and other executives were on a Zoom call. And it turned out that the, the videos were superimposed over essentially avatars. They had simulated their voices using clips from their voices And it combined it all together to create something that was very very difficult to overcome by the average person and that's because today people aren't really ready for the kinds of kind of mind-bending technologies that are out there
26: that is nuts a fake zoom call and like fake video fake audio fake all of it that's wild and it worked and it worked right do you have any thoughts on what we as consumers should do to protect ourselves from this latest generation of malicious AI?
18: With generative AI or any kind of media, you have to think that yes, it very well could be fabricated and that technology will get better and better. So video, audio, they're all questionable. I would say the other thing is, for example, it's happened to many people where they'll get a distressed call from someone they know and they say maybe they're in Mexico and then some foreign country and they've been kidnapped and they need money via a wire transfer or something of that nature. And this is this is happening pretty widespread as well, right? This is the analog just tip is if someone calls you and they say they're in distress, they need money or they need help or whatnot. I mean, I have and many people I know now have like a, a code word with their family. And so people really need to understand what's happening in the information environment to protect themselves today.
26: Wasim Khalid is CEO and co-founder of Blackbird AI. Thank you so much.
18: Thank you for having me.
26: Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietinen. Our engineers are Jessen Duller, John Brewington, and Brian Allison. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshor with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: Enjoy some sunshine today before clouds move in for the weekend. We'll have mostly clear skies and upper 30s along with some gusty winds. The clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. Skies stay overcast tomorrow and there's a slight chance of snow in the morning. It'll be in the upper 30s. Sunday, a mix of sun and clouds. It'll be windy and in the mid-30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. ¶¶